Beloved, hear God call us to worship this morning from Jeremiah chapter 29. And what I want us to hear is God's hope for us in the present and God's hope for us uh, in the future. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Beloved, in our present, we cling to the future hope that God has given us in Jesus as everything is moving toward Jesus. And part of what it looks like for us to cling to the hope that we have in Christ is to confess our rebellion, is to name our sin, is to own our rebellion against God and see his redemption to us in Christ. And so we are going to confess our sin together as God's people. And after we say this confession, we'll spend a little bit of time uh, quietly and more personally confessing our sin before the Lord. But let's confess together this morning, acknowledge our sin and our rebellion, acknowledge God's grace to us in Jesus. Faithful God, In your word, you have offered us the truest story of the world. You created in holiness. We rebelled in sin. You redeem in righteousness and restore in love. Your word brings transcendence and meaning to our narrow and confused world. It is our lamp and light. On the fragmented path of life. Thank you for what you have done and are doing in us because of Jesus. In our sin, we are guilty and dead. In Christ, we are righteous and alive. In our sin, our hearts are hardened stone. In Christ, our hearts become flesh that is softened and formed by your grace. We need forgiveness, and it is forgiveness you give us in Christ. Holy Spirit, work in us to abandon sin and death and cling to life in Christ. Shape our hearts by grace. Faithful God, you are our greatest good. You are our unending need. Amen. Now let's take a few moments to quietly go before your God, confess your sin, see his forgiveness and his grace to you in Christ. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess all of these things in the hope of your mercy, which is fully and finally given to us in your one and only Son, Jesus, our Savior, our Rock and our Redeemer, and we pray these things in his name. Amen. Beloved, God loves you. God loves us, and he wants us to hear his assurance of his forgiveness to us in Christ. And it comes to us this morning from Ephesians chapter 2. And we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. As those who are saved by grace, it is grace that works in us to declare what it is that Christ has done for us, what he is doing in us presently, and what he will do in and for and through us in our future. And so let's declare that together this morning, beloved. So I will ask the question and then let's respond together. Beloved of Christ, what is it that we believe about the work of Christ for us? Christ was crucified, died, and was buried for our sin. By his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us righteous before God. His resurrection is also a guarantee of our resurrection. Therefore, in this life we now live, Jesus has, by grace, changed our hearts to confess his name and present ourselves to him as living sacrifices. We are also free to flee the temptation of sin and run to Jesus. We are to live knowing that his blood speaks a better word than our sin. Our death is not a payment for our sins, but only a dying to sin and entering into eternal life. In the life to come, we will reign with Christ over all creation for eternity. We will fully experience the glory for which we were originally made. Beloved, we have an absolutely sure hope for our present and for our future in Christ. Good morning. If you would, let's look together at Daniel chapter 2 this morning. As you're turning there, getting ready to read the screen as the verses will come up, the verses I'm going to read, I uh, just want you to know that Daniel uh, is still in that section of Scripture in which God's people are in exile. We are working our way through the prophets, and Daniel's life overlapped and with Ezekiel as well as Jeremiah and their teachings. And so that situates what's going on in terms of the history of the world and what we're reading about. Uh, this happened a long time ago, uh, but these words remain ever true. They are life to us. They are hope. It is in these words that we find the good news that God has for us in Jesus. So if you would, let's look together at Daniel chapter 2. Listen to this as I read God's word. This was the dream. Now, we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, uh, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be divided a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it. 
just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you that in your grace and mercy, you give us your word to study, to reflect upon. You have given us your word that is indeed a light and a lamp for our fragmented path. Would you lead us today to the Savior? Would you help us to bring all that we are as we hear your word so that all that we are would intersect with truth and that your truth would inform and challenge and convict that your truth would guide our lives and make us more like your son, Jesus. And we pray this Holy Spirit knowing that this only happens through you and because of you. So act on us, help us. We pray this, trusting that your grace is real and active and powerful today in us. We pray this for your glory. Amen. Do you remember what it was like when you were a child playing with your friends outside? Do you remember what it was like when you were playing with your friends? Maybe you were riding bikes together or playing with toys. Maybe you were outside running around. Maybe you were even doing something together. And then there was always that one friend that decided he was going to pick up a little rock and he was going to start throwing it and seeing what would happen. And usually that friend that picked up the rock always had this smile on his face because he was a little bit mischievous. You remember those times? Maybe you do. Maybe you've observed them and your own children playing with other children before. And you remember what happened when that guy picked up that little rock? You remember everyone started running as fast as they could, doing everything possible to get out of the way of the rock. Well, this morning, the point of this passage is this, and it's going to be against everything, every fiber of our being. The point of Daniel 2 is this, let the rock hit you. Let the rock hit you. Now, to show that to you, I want to walk through the story briefly and then get into the takeaway. So let's dive into the story. Daniel chapter 2 begins in the king's palace and in the king's bedroom. Nebuchadnezzar has been asleep. It's the middle of the night. He has a horrific nightmare. 
He wakes up and he can't go back to sleep. He is terrified. He is shook. And he doesn't know what to do other than to be terrified. So, once he realizes he can't go back to sleep, he determines that he needs to call for his aides and advisors to come and help him. So he calls for his sorcerers, he calls for uh, his, uh, those that are supposed to have wisdom, his advisors, and he asks them into his presence. And when they appear before Nebuchadnezzar, this is what he expects. He is so paranoid and so terrified at that nightmare, he says to them, you must tell me the dream and its interpretation. Not just the interpretation. He expects that his advisors will tell him what went on in his mind while he was asleep and had the nightmare. Now, that sounds utterly ridiculous, doesn't it? I mean, the, the equivalent of that is like, us going to a restaurant we've never been to before and sitting down and the waiter or waitress comes up to us and says, what would you like to order? And you look at the waiter or waitress and say, I don't know, you tell me or we're leaving. It sounds utterly ridiculous, obnoxious. Well, those that are supposed to advise Nebuchadnezzar feel exactly the same way. Except Nebuchadnezzar is so committed to this. He is so committed to his advisors telling him the dream and the interpretation that he says to them, if you don't do both, I will destroy you. I will wipe you out. I will kill you. Nebuchadnezzar threatens death if they don't tell him the dream and the interpretation. So, of course, the advisors are beside themselves, and really, they're planning to die. For some reason, Daniel wasn't present. Don't know the reason? For some reason, he wasn't present. And oh, by the way, you can read about all of that in the first 13 verses of chapter 2. In verses 14 through 23, we find this. Daniel wasn't present, but he heard about what the king said. So Daniel goes to one of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, other advisors named Arioch, and he says to Arioch, hey, Arioch, get me on the calendar to meet with Nebuchadnezzar. Get me on his schedule, and of course, make it soon. So Arioch says, I'll do it, and obviously it didn't work out to whether they were meeting that night or that next day, so Daniel went home. And what he did when he went home, you can read about in verses 14 through 23. Daniel goes home and he meets with his three friends, those that you probably have heard about before. And Daniel tells them about this situation. Daniel communicates to them that the king is demanding that we tell him the dream and the interpretation. And Daniel and his friends pray. They seek God. They know that in and of themselves, they don't have the capacity to communicate and, with the king and to meet the king's demands. So Daniel and his friends pray. And if you look at the end of verse 23, you'll find that God gave them insight into the king's matter. 
God gave Daniel and his friends insight so that he knew the dream and its interpretation. So, when you read the rest of the chapter, what you find, verses 24 through 35, is that God tells Nebuchadnezzar the dream. And then in verses 36 through 45, what we read together this morning, Daniel gives the king the interpretation of the dream. Well, that's the story. That's what happens in this chapter. So let's go to our takeaways. I have three of them for you today. The first takeaway is this. We can all connect with Nebuchadnezzar. We can all connect with Nebuchadnezzar. All of us know what it's like to have a nightmare. All of us know what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night and be shook and be unable to go back to sleep. All of us know what it's like to lose sleep because we can't stop thinking about something. And all of us know that when something dominates our minds and we can't do anything about it, we have all overreacted like Nebuchadnezzar making the decree that everyone, all of his advisors and wise men should be destroyed or killed if they don't do what he says. We have had harsh reactions to things as well when our minds are wrapped around the axle about something. We can all relate to Nebuchadnezzar. But think about Nebuchadnezzar. Deep down, deep down in Nebuchadnezzar's heart, he was like a little child. And oh, by the way, I'm not saying that in any way, shape, or form to belittle children that wake up in the middle of the night and run into our bedrooms and tell us about a nightmare that they're having. I'm not meaning to demean children doing that at all. I'm saying it because Nebuchadnezzar had no visible threats on the horizon. I'm saying that because Nebuchadnezzar had one of the greatest empires in the history of the world. I'm saying that because Nebuchadnezzar had virtually almost unlimited power with no one who was a threat to him at all. And yet here he is, deep down, frightened. And that reminds us, that it doesn't matter how successful someone may be. It doesn't matter how much power they have. It doesn't matter if the plan that they have for their lives seems to be working. Deep down, there are struggles for everyone. Everyone. Everyone has internal struggles. Let me show you even more. If you were to fast forward to Daniel chapter 3, you'll find out that Nebuchadnezzar had a goal. What Nebuchadnezzar wanted was to build a gigantic monument in which many scholars think was a monument to himself. And in Daniel chapter 3, we find out that Nebuchadnezzar builds this huge monument and requires that everyone bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar had always had a plan to set up something whereby people would worship 
him. And yet this dream that he had, this dream that he had was seemingly clear to him about what the plain meaning was. Did Nebuchadnezzar understand everything about the dream? No. But when you go back through and read the dream, when you read what was going on in his mind, you can see that what shook him to his core was the plain understanding of the dream. And that plain understanding was this, that he had a weak foundation. That, yeah, the top of the statue was gold. There was even silver, bronze, and iron. But the feet, the foundation, was weak and vulnerable. You see, what was going on in Nebuchadnezzar's heart is that the whole foundation for his life was exposed. And even though he didn't know all the particulars of what it meant, even though he didn't understand all the intricacies, he understood that something was wrong. Now, can't we relate to this too? All of us have a tendency to build our own kingdoms. We all, because of the selfishness in our hearts and because of our rebellion against God, we want to build the kingdom of self. And if you want your foundation to be exposed, because you see that's God's grace that's doing it, it's God's grace that reveals to Nebuchadnezzar and reveals to us the foundation of our lives. And by God's grace, he reveals the foundation of our lives by getting at our hearts. Because you see, if we understand our hearts, we will understand the kingdom that we try to build. And we'll understand the shape of the kingdom of self that all of us are trying to build. So let's borrow some language from and ideas from a few weeks ago. And let's think about the foundation. Let's think about our hearts. And if we're going to think about our hearts, let's think about what our hearts are chasing. Do you remember some of this language? If you want to think about what your heart's chasing, look at your fears. Let's, let's talk about some things we've talked about before and add a couple to it. And tie that into the kingdom of self that we're all trying to build. If one of your fears is chaos, then more than likely... You are building a kingdom of control. And when you build a kingdom of control, what it means is whatever you can't control can't be part of your kingdom. It means that whatever you get involved in ultimately is for the purpose of control, your control. So that if things don't work out that way, then you'll jettison that. Because ultimately the kingdom of self looks an awful lot like continuing to find control in every conceivable place. If one of your fears is being wrong, then the shape of the kingdom of self means that you're trying to build a kingdom of always being right, which means your kingdom will grow as you meet more and more people that agree with you. And if people don't agree with you and don't think that you're right, you won't expand your kingdom there. 
Because the kingdom is about self. And the kingdom is about being right. So we'll be excruciating to ever to try to listen to those who don't agree with you. If you, if one of your fears of your heart is rest, then the kingdom of self that we have a tendency to build is in productivity. Therefore, the more productive we are, the more we feel as though our kingdom of self is safe and on solid ground. It means that we will look to others that we perceive have produced and we will value those that produce. And we will build our kingdoms and extend our kingdoms and link with other kingdoms where everything is about production. If one of your fears is vulnerability, meaning that it's really, really hard to be honest in situations, if there's a constant desire to withhold things because you don't like being vulnerable, it means that the shape of the kingdom of self looks a lot like maintaining and protecting your image, whatever image it is that you project. It means that the decisions that we make with our friends or coworkers or career or whoever we associate with is all based upon our image. And so if anything, if anything were to affect our image, then we have to quickly be dismissive because we want a kingdom that enhances our own image. If one of your great fears, the great fears of your heart, is losing control, then that means that the kingdom of self that we have a tendency to build is based largely on paranoia. So that we become paranoid of everything that's unfamiliar. Everything that doesn't line up. It means that the kingdom of self looks a lot like the place of paranoia. If your heart is afraid of nuance, meaning in biblical terms, wisdom. If deep down, Wisdom is an idea that you don't want to get into you, a concept that you don't want to get into you. Biblically speaking, a person that you don't want to get deep into you because Jesus is wisdom. If you're afraid of wisdom, if you're afraid of nuance, then the kingdom of self looks an awful lot like oversimplification. That everything in your kingdom is either this or that. And we live oversimplified lives in which we really struggle to understand other people, in which we really struggle to get outside of our own mindset because we look at everything as either this or that. And friends, I mention that to you because it seems to me that that is one of the hallmarks of the culture that we live in and the culture that we are part of. Our culture wants to make everything binary. Everything is either this or that. And there's almost no gray area whatsoever. There's no need for wisdom. There's no need for thoughtfulness. There's no need for nuance. It's either this or that. 
Think about your own foundation. Connect with Nebuchadnezzar. Realize that we all are afraid. And deep down, we have a tendency to build our own kingdom. And it's God's grace that exposes that in us. So process those things. Think about your life. Thank God for his grace. Second takeaway, we should all connect with Daniel. We should all connect with Daniel as well. Think about Daniel. Think about his life. Daniel is living in a secular, polytheistic, pagan context. He is living in a culture that does not love God. And he has a place of high position, a place of high responsibility. He is working in a government that is absolutely against God, that wants worship of self, worship of the king, Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel is figuring out every single day how to follow God in the place where God has him. And you realize that Daniel, it never enters into Daniel's mind that he got the job because of his skill set and then he would use his job as a platform to try to express his beliefs. That would never enter his mind. For Daniel, his faith goes to the core of who he is. Therefore, he is having to struggle every day. He is having the challenge every single day of making every decision based upon what he believes and how that connects and intersects in this very difficult context. And let me tell you, that is remarkable and that is probably unexpected especially if you understand the history and the background of Daniel's life and the life of God's people as they started exile, as they entered into exile in the first few years of being in exile. Let me explain. You see, as God's people were going into exile, as Daniel and his friends were going into exile in the first few years, there were some prophets that were communicating a false message. There were prophets that were telling God's people to live in a way that wasn't, that wasn't in accordance with what God wanted. You can read about it in Jeremiah chapter 28. One of the representatives of those prophets was named Hananiah. And remember, this is all background to Daniel going into exile. This is all background to God's people the first few years they lived in exile. Hananiah told the people of God, Hey, y'all just hang in there two years because we are going to attack Nebuchadnezzar. We are going to break the yoke that he has on you. And in two years, we're going to get back all the things that Nebuchadnezzar stole from us. And we are going to return to power. Therefore, the prophet said, you need to separate yourself from the Babylonians you need to pray against them because God is going to judge them. And when God overthrows them, we will be back in power. 
Hananiah's mentality and what he was communicating to God's people was basically this. Separation equals preservation. So if we separate from this pagan culture, if we don't enter in at all, we will keep ourselves pure. And Jeremiah had to respond to this. And at the end of chapter 28 and into chapter 29, we find out what Jeremiah said. At the end of chapter 28, we find Jeremiah saying this. He says, Hananiah, you might be right, but I don't think that you are. And then God gave a message to Jeremiah to communicate to Hananiah and therefore to communicate to everyone else. What God said to Hananiah was this, Hananiah, your message of how I want my people to live in exile is wrong. Hananiah, you have put a greater burden on my people. Hananiah, if they live out what you say, they are believing a lie. And then God goes on to say positively through Jeremiah in chapter 29 what God wants for his people who are living in exile, who are living in a very difficult context, people like Daniel and others. God says, move in. God says, build houses, have families. God says, I have plans for you, for a future and a hope. God says, pray for the place where you are in exile. God says, seek the flourishing of where you are in exile. Because as where you live flourishes, you will find that you flourish. You see, God wasn't saying separate. He was saying, move in, because I have a plan to grow you as my people and to change you as my people, and I have a plan to grow and change the Babylonians. Remember, even from the beginning, God has always wanted his people to live for the life of the world. God has always wanted his glory to spread everywhere, and God wanted Daniel to live for the life of the world. And Jeremiah 29 profoundly shaped Daniel. And Jeremiah 29 should profoundly shape us. And what that means is that we have to put ourselves in situations in which we are talking with people that don't believe the same things as we do. It means that we have to figure out how to love God in the midst of fulfilling our callings every day. It means that we have to pray for the place where we are. And we have to seek its flourishing through living out our callings. Through seeking the good of the place where we are. You see, when you put yourself in situations that are a little bit uncomfortable... When you start talking to people that maybe don't believe exactly the same thing that you do, maybe they don't have the exact same story as you, when you start doing that, what you will realize 
is that there are a lot of questions that people have. What you will realize is the pat answers, the oversimplification, the way that we oversimplify things doesn't always work. It means that there will be a lot of things that we assume about people, but when you really start talking to them, you'll realize that there's a lot more there than what we have probably thought. One of the ways that God has most impressed this upon me is when I did campus ministry through RUF at Western Carolina University because I had a lot of assumptions about going to campus and working with students and and what that would mean. I had some assumptions that weren't exactly right. And it wasn't until I got in the trenches and it wasn't until I got on the ground, so to speak, that I learned that. You know, I had some assumptions about how the university really was against Christianity and wanted to squelch Christianity out. What I realized is that the university wasn't against Christianity. The university was against Christian organizations that didn't respect the university and didn't respect the students of the university. I thought that those who didn't know God, didn't follow God, one of my assumptions is that they hated Jesus. What I learned is that they didn't hate Jesus. What I learned is that they really struggled with Christians and they really struggled to understand the church. Were there some professors? There were a couple of them that really seemed to have a bent toward annihilating Christianity and refuting it. Yes, there were. But in the main, people just think that Christianity is irrelevant and doesn't matter. They don't understand why anyone would want to believe other than it's just a crutch and maybe something you can hold on to. And if they had any exposure to Christianity, what they thought about Christianity, what they perceived about Christianity, is that it was just a bunch of rules. I'm saying all this to you, not to beat you up in any way, is to say to keep going. I know that you are trying to live out your faith in your job. I know that you reach out to your neighbors and care for them. I realize that you do talk to people that aren't exactly like you. I'm saying keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. Add prayer to that if you're not praying. Have a bigger idea of what God can do in a place. Connect what you're doing already to the overall plan of God to spread his glory everywhere and in and through everything. Jeremiah 29 should shape us exactly the way that it shaped Daniel. It should continue to mold us into living for God in hard, difficult, challenging, in a challenging culture. Well, the third takeaway is this. And this is something that is against every fiber of our being. Let the rock 
hit you. Let the rock tear you down and build something in you that cannot be stopped and cannot be stunted. Let the rock hit you, tear you down, and build something in you that cannot be stopped or stunted. And the reason why I say that is this. The great danger that emerges in this chapter is that Nebuchadnezzar was profoundly shook, but he was not changed. Nebuchadnezzar heard about what his dream meant. And the very next chapter, he's building the monument. Nebuchadnezzar was shook, but he was not changed. And beloved, we all need to be changed. And the only way we're going to be changed is for the rock to hit us, tear us down, and build something in us that cannot be stopped or stunted. You see, here's the dream. The dream was that there was this large statue that was gold at the top and then silver and then bronze and then iron and then working its way down into clay. And what happened was is that those different metals represent different kingdoms. And yes, they represent what happened with Babylon. And then after Babylon, you had Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire that overtook the Babylonians. And then after that, ultimately, you had the Greeks with Alexander the Great. That's all true. But beloved, in the midst of all of that, there was a rock that came. And the rock hit the foundation of the statue. And the rock changed into a mountain that grows and grows and grows. Verse 35 tells you that. This rock knocks down the statue and builds a kingdom that cannot be stopped or stunted. You see, when you think about the rock, you realize that if you read through the verses, it will tell you the different qualities of the rock, if you will, that the rock is really insignificant compared to gold. A rock is worthless. If someone put a block of gold on your desk or a little pebble from the street, my hunch is you would take the gold block. God is communicating that this rock is insignificant It seems absolutely irrelevant. It seems like it doesn't matter at all compared to everything else. And yet, the foolishness of the rock brings down the entire statue. The rock is also said to be cut out without hands. Two times it says that. Meaning that this rock was not made with human ingenuity. This rock was supernaturally formed. And this rock tears down, and this rock builds up. Beloved, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the rock. 
Jesus is the stone that was rejected, that has become the cornerstone for the church, for the world, for the new world. Jesus is the rock. And the first time he came, he came in weakness. He came in insignificance. He came in humility, teaching, serving. He came healing. He came to this world to live here, utterly insignificant, in an insignificant place, seemingly. And what he did through his life and his death and his resurrection was start a kingdom. And that kingdom has continued to grow all the way from the Middle East, all the way here, Greenville, North Carolina. We are the ends of the earth. God's kingdom has been growing for over 2,000 years and it is continuing to grow, even if in our own country, things are not like perhaps we want them to be. God's kingdom is not slowing down, and it won't. His kingdom is continuing to spread and to grow. Beloved, when Jesus returns, when he returns, his glory will fill the whole earth. He will gather us and create the new world and the new heavens. He will bring it down. And his kingdom will be complete. Beloved, let the rock hit you. Let Jesus hit you and tear you down and build something in you that cannot be stopped or stunted. Let him expose the kingdoms that you're building. Let him identify the shape of your kingdom of self and know that it's by grace that he's doing that so that you might abandon your own kingdom and serve and build his kingdom. Let this rock tear you down and build you up as you figure out what it looks like to live for the life of the world and connecting with others in seeing the good and seeing the goodness of God spread everywhere. Beloved, let this rock hit you and build something in you by grace that cannot be stopped or stunted. You see, God's kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world at all. God's kingdom says that greatness comes through service, not power and position. Beloved, God's kingdom says that the crown is through the cross, that victory is found in submission. Beloved, in God's kingdom, the glory is through the grave. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are building a kingdom. We thank you that in grace, you would expose our own kingdoms. 
and that you would show that yours is so much better. We thank you that your grace is powerful because you don't just want us to have some type of behavior modification or get this issue or that issue right, that you're after our hearts to change us, to bring us into alignment with your plan for the world. So Jesus, help us to be a people that are willing for you to tear us down and build us up again. Build us up in love and in truth and in unity. And continue to build your kingdom. Start with us. For your kingdom is here and it is also near. Your kingdom is started and it has not yet fully come. So Lord Jesus, we pray that you would continue to work and we long for the day for your return. Come quickly, we pray, for your glory. Amen. Beloved, as you strive to live out your calling this week, as you love your family, as you figure out what it looks like for you to love God in your job, to love your neighbor, know that God will be with you and he will bless you. Hear these words and know that they have been bought by the blood of Jesus that the empty tomb guarantees that these things are true and will happen in your life. So try to live as if you believe that they are true. The Lord your God is going to bless you and he is also going to keep you. This week his smile is upon you and he will be gracious to you. And in the age to come forever and ever and even now, his presence is with you. And one day, he will make all things new. He will bring peace. He will bring shalom. It's true because our Christ is alive. Amen. Go in his peace.